Andrew Jackson's an interesting study in human character. He was uh, born and raised in the Carolinas, so he's kind of our, our president. He uh, became president of the United States. He was tough. He had a bad temper. He was, his nickname was Old Hickory. Uh, uh, one of the earliest accounts we have of him was he refused to shine the boots of an English officer, and the officer slashed him with a sword as a result. He was the only president to be a prisoner of war. He killed a man in a duel one time. It was said, too, that he went to, bed, went, went to his deathbed with a number of bullets uh, in him. He was a, a tough uh, a, a person with a temper in a lot of ways. Well, Andrew Jackson went to church one Sunday, and he went to the church where Peter Cartwright, the Methodist preacher, was preaching, 19th century. Uh, and it was told Peter Cartwright that Andrew Jackson was in the congregation that morning, and he needed to be very careful about what he said. So Peter Cartwright got up into the pulpit and said, I understand Andrew Jackson is here and I have been requested to be guarded about my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. After the service, as uh, Peter Cartwright was greeting people, uh, Andrew Jackson came out, shook his hand and said, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I'd whip the world. Well, John the Baptist was that kind of preacher. Uh, he had that kind of temperament in many ways. He feared no one from, but God himself. It would never have been said of Peter Cartwright or of John the Baptist that he was seeker sensitive. He gave people the unvarnished word of God. And my hope is that this morning as we look at the ministry of John the Baptist, we can have a fonder appreciation uh, for his ministry. Let's go to the word. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you right now and ask a blessing upon uh, this service of worship. We pray, God, that as we look at this wonderful account of the ministry of John the Baptist and we look at the fulfillment of ancient prophecy in that ministry, we would just have an awesome wonder about you, about your word, about your church. We are privileged to be called the people of God, the bride of Christ. And we pray for your presence. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And we pray, God, that as a result of this sermon, we would just be more madly in love with you than we are now. In Christ's name, amen. Please do turn to Luke chapter 3. And we're looking at verses 1 through 14. This ended up being one of those uh, sermons that I cut in half thinking that it might become too long. So we're going to look at part one this week and part two uh, next week. But I will begin by reading the, 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 uh, the full account of the text before us. Uh, <clears throat> again, Luke 3, verses 1 through 14. God says, Dr. Luke writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the uh, region of Ithuria and Trachontus, and Lysensus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
And he, saw, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him the one who has none, and whoever has food to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And, uh, and, uh, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. So we're going to look at the first four parts of this text this morning. You're going to see here the period of John's ministry in verses 1 through 2a, the place of John's ministry of 2b through 3a, the portrayal of John's ministry in verse 3b, and preparing for salvation, verses 4 through 6. You might find your home group helps insert of assistance with you as you'll follow along with me. But first of all, we have the, the period of John's ministry. So it's been 18 years since the last account of what Jesus was doing. We find Jesus in the temple, remember, with the teachers of the law being left behind inadvertently by his parents. Um, we get that little view of Jesus' childhood. We haven't heard anything about John the Baptist since the wonderful prophecy and, of his birth and, uh, and his coming uh, some months before Jesus uh, being born in that miraculous account here. And remember that Luke sets out, to, to, as he says in chapter 1, to give us an orderly account, follow these things closely for some time. He was a researcher. And Luke knew that truth-telling, honesty, is one of the great virtues of Christianity. So uh, even though many sometimes uh, historians at this time would give fanciful accounts of different things and incorporate myth and that sort of thing, Luke was consumed with truth. So we see his diligence, his faithfulness to giving us good historical accounts, even in this text right here, where he gives us exactly, wants, he wants us to know exactly the period of John the Baptist's ministry, which of course was also the, the, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So he provides us here seven individuals, five Gentile and two Jewish, in order to identify the period of time for the ministry of John the Baptist and, of course, of Jesus Christ. And, and really, I want this to be something of an encouragement to you because all the people mentioned here were basically scoundrels. <laughs> and we get a little discouraged because we looked about the, the wickedness of so many people who have responsibility over our nation, both in government and also in corporate world and even in the religious sphere of things. And, and we, we think there's no hope. There's no hope. Folks, it could be a lot worse than it is. And if you learn a little bit about some of these folks, as we'll go through each one of them, uh, you'll, you, I think you'll find that to be the case. He starts off here, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius was the second emperor, the first being uh, Caesar Augustus, the one that did the census where Jesus was, uh, Jesus's parents were, uh, came to Bethlehem, uh, it, uh, it, it's prob he probably came into power in the year 19 AD, so the year that... Uh, 
that Luke is pointing to is probably 29 A.D. It may be 26 A.D. because Tiberius was co-regent uh, with Caesar Augustus for a few years before Augustus's death. Here we have Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. This is another one of those texts where people, uh, uh, people who didn't believe in the, in the scriptures and who were liberal in their approach to things said, oh, there's no such thing as Pontius Pilate. And they found this great relief of uh, mentioning Pontius Pilate as the governor. It's on the, sh it's on the shore there near Caesarea. I have seen it. I couldn't necessarily read it, but I have seen it. I was told what was on there. But Pontius Pilate was a real guy. He was appointed the fifth governor of Judea by Tiberius in A.D. 26. He remained there until he was removed from office in the year 36. The Gospels and extra-biblical source point to Pilate as being proud, arrogant, and cynical and really weak-willed and weak, uh, weak in terms of his leadership in many ways. He displayed insensitivity and brutality. He marched his troops in, going against the, uh, the norm of the time. He marched his troops into Jerusalem, carrying the Roman standards, which were images in the eyes of the Jews and offended the Jews. He wanted to raise money for an aqueduct system to bring water to Jerusalem, and he took money out of the temple treasury in order to pay for it. But the thing that got him sacked eventually was uh, in Samaria, there were a bunch of Samaritans that wanted to go up to the top of Mount Gerizim because they had heard this rumor that Moses buried a bunch of treasure up there. When Pontius Pilate saw that they were doing that, he thought it was an attack of insurrectionists. He sent his soldiers down to kill all these prospectors and, uh, and uh, run them off. And uh, the, the, there was a complaint to the governor of Syria. He was sent back to Rome to stand trial before Tiberius, but Tiberius died before he ever had his trial. So he kind of falls off, uh, kind of just disappears from history. Some say he committed suicide. Some say he was exiled to Gaul. Uh, but anyway, he was a weak man, and God used that weakness in order to see to it that his son would be crucified to die for our sins. Herod, being the tetrarch of Galilee, we got the Herod brothers coming in here. This is not Herod the Great. This is the children of Herod. When Herod died in 4 B.C., uh, the domain was divided among his three sons, Archelaus, uh, Antipas, and Philip. And uh, the one here that, that, that is mentioned here is Herod is Antipas, and he was over, uh, he was, uh, over the Judea and Samaria. Uh, and he replaced Archelaus, who was so cruel that the Romans fired him, got rid of him. Now, the Romans, for sport, watched people slaughter each other in the gallery, right, in the arena, in the Colosseum. Uh, they, would, they would bring in hundreds of lions and make sure that people killed the lions in front of everybody. So if you get fired for being too cruel and violent by the Romans, you were really cruel and violent. So that's the kind of people that were in charge of the government at this particular time. His brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of uh, Etudria and Trachontus. Uh, again, he was, uh, he was uh, actually the best of all of the Herod sons. Uh, and, uh, and going back to, again, to uh, Antipas, he ruled in Galilee from 4 B.C. to A.D. 30, and he was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded because he was offended. Uh, it's like Andrew Jackson killing par, uh, uh, Peter Cartwright for telling the truth. So he, had, he also played a role in the mock trial of Jesus. Then you have Lysantius Tetrarch of Abilene. Again, bi uh, biblical uh, scholars who doubt the uh, inerrancy of Scripture pointed to the fact that there was a Lysantius who, who actually uh, ruled in that area in 36 B.C. So Luke's got his facts wrong, but again... 
as archaeological discoveries tend to do, they did find that there was a licentious who was actually ruling uh, that period, that place of Abilene at this time as well. So Luke has got spot on, no matter what people say. Then you have the, the, the religious aspect. Here's the mention of two Jews here. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, and basically, they seem to be the high priest and, and sharing that power jointly at this time. It's an interesting study in just the corruption that can occur uh, within the church itself. Uh, Annas was, was probably the most powerful figure for decades uh, in that time. He was the high priest, but he was removed from office by uh, Verilus Gracius, Pilate's predecessor. Uh, and, but he would still be properly referred to as high priest, like we would refer to a former president as president. But he basically had this, this uh, dynamic mob family running uh, the temple and that sort of thing at the time. Uh, Annas was removed from office, but he had five sons, a grandson, and his son-in-law Caiaphas, who ruled uh, with him uh, and uh, had a lot of power. He was deserve, uh, determined to preserve his political power, and he, and he thought uh, one way to do that is to have Jesus killed. Let's just get rid of this guy. He's causing too much trouble. He was notoriously greedy. Uh, he would collect. It's interesting that he would collect. You know how... Um, Jews would take a sacrifice to the temple and they, would, uh, and they would exchange their money because only Jewish coin would be allowed to be on temple property. So they would exchange their Roman money or their Greek money uh, for Jewish money. And then basically, uh, uh, Annas got a, a cut of that, a percentage of all of the things that went on, all the concessions, the selling of the change of money, the selling of sheep, the selling of incense, whatever it might be. And he got a, a cut. So he was fabulously wealthy taking money from people like you, taking money from people who went to go faithfully uh, 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 give their sacrifices to the Lord, faithfully to worship. This, uh, uh, and then, of course, this made uh, uh, Jesus very unpopular with this crowd because he went in and what did he do? He overturned the money changers and he upset the tables and he said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. So that got Annas's uh, attention. It, they, they said that even the temple concessions were called the Bazaar of Anna. So much like we saw during the time of the Reformation, the utter corruption of the church was everywhere. So you had these thugs running the government and these mafia bosses running the church. These were difficult, dark, dark times. As one commentator says, everything we know about this impressive list of leaders testifies to their pride, violence, and self-indulgence. They were under the, the Jews were under the oppression of pagan rulers and a corrupt, apostate, hypocritical, and legalistic religion. This is the low point, in many ways, of Jewish culture. But just like it's always darkest before the dawn, John the Baptist begins baptizing people in repentance and preparation for the coming of Messiah there at the Jordan River. There's been no prophetic voice for 430 years, or 460 years, actually, at this point in time, since the prophet Malachi closed out the Old Testament. We see here the place of John's ministry. Again, Luke, seeking to be accurate, tells us here that uh, he was in the region around the Jordan. Uh, this, is the, this is a barren and desolate place. It's about 22 miles between Jerusalem and, uh, and the Jordan River, and there's nothing in between the two, hardly. Uh, it's interesting. It's still a desolate place. When you drive from uh, the Jordan River to Jerusalem, you look around and you really hardly even see sheep or camels or anything like that. It's just rocks. It's just hot 
rocks everywhere. So people were literally walking 22 miles to the Jordan River to go be out there. Of course, the wilderness is the place of testing in Scripture. Matthew gives us the same similar kind of insight as to Luke. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is uh, he was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So there's a, there's a, you get a little insight from Matthew about what John looked like and what he ate, and we'd almost rather not have that insight from Matthew. I mean, he was an odd guy. He was an, there's one of these John the Baptistites in every seminary class I ever went to. You know, they're just odd people, you know, kind of super extreme Christians, st Christian stormtrooper types, you know. And so he wore this rough camel hair uh, uh, outfit here, and he ate bugs and honey. I, I assume he dipped them. Uh, but he and he had this and, and he's basically just living off the land. And apparently he had been there for some time. Remember, John's parents were very old. They were elderly. That's why it was such a miracle about his birth. So it may have been after their death, he went on out there to be with the Lord uh, uh, in the in the desert. But he started baptizing people in preparation, fulfillment of the ministry that he was given. And, uh, and, uh, and they were blessed by that. Then we see here a portray of John's ministry, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You know, that's a simple sermon uh, uh, series right there, right? Repentance and forgiveness of sins. But doesn't it touch the core of what we want? Aren't we desperate to be forgiven our sins, desperate to rid ourselves of the shame, the humiliation, of the, oh, I can't believe we did that again. God, would you please forgive me that, that burden of, 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 the, of the idea of a coming judgment? Uh, so, so it's interesting. The wilderness is the place of testing. Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around in the wilderness. And now John is calling them out into the desert to be tested Again, now this baptism that John performed was not like our Christian baptism. It was a different kind of baptism. At that time, only Gentiles would be baptized. The Jews despised the Gentiles so much that if one became a proselyte, they wanted to become a Jew, they would have to be cleansed from all of their Gentile sins before they would go through that. So, but he is now calling on the Jews to be baptized in the same way. So um, he was getting people ready for salvation. That was his form of baptism. It was not affirming that their salvation had already come, like we would have with believers' baptism. Uh, of course, the angel announced John's birth. It said that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he would be make ready a people for the Lord. Uh, Zechariah, his father, said, "...and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High." For you will go before the Lord and prepare the ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Now, again, there was nothing, there was nothing attractive in a sense about John. Talk about an inconvenient church to go to. I mean, he's out there 20 miles out in the desert. And uh, now they didn't have parking problem like we have, but uh, uh, he was an odd looking person. He was kind of wild eyed and maybe a, a little scary, but his message was attractive. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. 
And it's an old message. You know, people will say, oh, the old God of the Old Testament, he was a God of wrath and judgment. The God of the New Testament is different. Let me, let me give you some, some verses that describe the God of the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Christian, you need to listen to that. It's God's character. It's his default to be loving and forgiving. And so often we just beat ourselves up with our own sin and our mistakes. And, and we're so anxious about the future and everything. And, 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 and frankly, I think if you're a Christian, it kind of grieves God. Because you're basically saying you don't believe that he really does love you, even though you mess up all the time. Psalm uh, uh, 86, 5 through 6. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my ear. Listen to my plea for grace. Psalm 103, 11 through 14. For as the high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And then, of course, the wonderful New Testament promise that comes to us from Jeremiah 31. It's also in Ezekiel. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So there's, there's always two audiences in every sermon we have. There are people who are in the light who need greater light. We call that sanctification. That is growth and holiness once you become a Christian. And then there are people in the darkness who need to come into the light. Some of you are those people. And some of you may have be, even been told you're a Christian, but you're not really a Christian. You need to come to the Lord. You need to come to the Lord today. You need to repent you need to want this forgiveness of your sins. You want to know the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to be part of God's people. And what do you need to do? You need to repent. You need to follow John the Baptist. This is not a complicated message. That's why people didn't listen to it in a lot of ways. If he had had all kinds of bells and whistles and swept back hairdo and lived in a mansion in Texas, maybe people would have listened to him, right? But he's just plain speaking i got to tell you, I think most preachers that I hang out with that preach the gospel, preach, or expository preachers, they just preach verse by verse. Uh, I, I think John the Baptist is one of their favorite heroes. And a lot of y'all are in seminary and studying Christian studies. I think he would become your favorite, one of your favorite two heroes too because he just stuck to the, to the book. He just told people what God told him in his word. Uh, I think about... Uh, my own ministry, I, I don't see myself as especially gifted. I'm not especially clever. I get tongue-tied every single sermon. Uh, but I'll tell you, I just stick to the, to the script. I just preach what God's word. And, and, and y'all are here partly because of that. Now, it's easy for me. There's not an Andrew Jackson in this room. Y'all want to hear it. You want to have it straight like that. It's very difficult for a number of other ministers because they preach things that are unpopular. Folks, John the Baptist is the standard for what a preacher, teacher ought to be like. And all of the teaching stations of this church, we hope, will emulate this idea of repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's just not complicated. But boy, it's life-changing, isn't it?
Now we see here preparing for salvation. And we have this quote from the from the book of Isaiah here. Uh, it was this this text from Isaiah was actually written originally in reference to the return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity under Cyrus here. Uh, but it's also has a, as often as the case a dual meaning here with the ministry of John the Baptist He's calling people out of captivity to be ready to come to salvation. As one commentator says, uh, in this case, to prepare for the coming of the king, the prophet envisioned a massive public works project. We're talking about leveling mountains, filling valleys, rough places, that kind of thing, in which whole mountains would be leveled and valleys would be raised up. There would be a superhighway through the wastelands, and the king who walked on it would be the Lord God himself. Now, the people of God at the time would have understood what this meant. If you, had, if you had a dignitary, a great king, an ambassador who was coming to visit your town, you would make sure that the way was prepared, that the potholes were filled in, that the way was cleaned up, there was no garbage on the street. You wanted this way to come in, and that was John the Baptist's ministry. A king has come. They just don't know it yet. But the king has come, and he is coming, and he's coming for you so John was the guy saying, we need to clean up the road. He's here. He's coming. He's on his way. That's what it means to repent. But, of course, it's figurative language in many ways. Uh, we're not literally knocking down mountains in order for, uh, for Christ to come. MacArthur says this, the, uh, Isaiah's intent and, and the ministry of John's intent was, the crooked, deceitful, devious, perverse things must be made straight. And any other rough places in the heart, whether self-love, love of money, love of the world, love of the flesh, lust of the flesh, and difference or unbelief must be smoothed out. Only then will the truly repentant see the salvation of God. And then Luke goes on to say, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke's the only one who makes this part of uh, the promise here from John's ministry. Now, that doesn't mean everybody gets saved. We know that from the rest of Holy Scripture. What it does mean is everybody will have an opportunity. The gospel will, is to be offered to male, female, black and white. It is to be male to, uh, made to slave and free, to Greek and to Jew. It is a gospel for everybody. Revelation tells us that before the throne of God, there is one from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We are the family of God, no matter what our family on earth was to look like. So it's this wonderful invitation. And really, I think Christianity is the only religion that can bring people together like that, that where your, your heritage doesn't matter because you get adopted by God. So basically, people were confused by, to see this baptism because that often meant uh, salvation. But John's baptism was one of repentance and preparation. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, who was a leader during the revolt, uh, during uh, the uh, revolt against Rome in the late 60s, uh, even commented on John the Baptist. He says this, He was a good man and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing to join in baptism. In his view, this was necessary preliminary of baptism was to be acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon or whatever sins they committed, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul has already thoroughly cleansed by right behavior. Isn't it interesting? So many people get confused. They think that salvation comes by baptism. Even Josephus understood that was not the message that was taught in Scripture. It's evidence of a turning uh, in John's baptisms. But repentance is necessary for salvation. 
Now, what happens is God convicts you of your sin. He gives you the faith to believe, and you believe, and then you repent. It's not like you have to prove yourself. You have to do a certain number of good works. You can't miss church 52 Sundays before you become a Christian. That does, it doesn't work that way. But if you claim the title Christ, and you have not changed since you made that profession, you're probably not a genuine Christian. Again, I've talked to a number of people who say, oh, yeah, I got saved when I was 12. I walked the aisle of the church when I was 12, but I didn't start to obey until I was 30. And I would tell them, let me help you with this. <laughs> you didn't become a Christian until you were 30. There is a call to repentance. All of us need to stop compromising the word of God. We need to be more serious about the things of Christ. We need to do those things that delight God. The little obediences, the little expressions of appreciation, the thoughts towards him. Uh, we, we sometimes we forget those little things that delight God. But for some of you, you need to become a Christian. You need to follow this principle of repentance. Trust me, continuing your life without Christ is no life at all. Most of us have seen Christ and we would never go back to our previous lives. So we're going to give you an opportunity after this service of worship. If anyone wants to become a Christian, they want to pray to receive Christ. Uh, they're going to have an opportunity to go to this boardroom over here and meet with some counselors there to introduce you to Christ and help you with that process. So like John the Baptist, Peter emphasized the idea of repentance in his Pentecost sermon. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead and the spirit came upon the apostles of that, that, that formerly extremely flawed, terrified group of men become powerful evangelists. Acts chapter 2, Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, and for uh, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation, so that... Uh, those who received these words were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would add to uh, us on this day 3,000 souls. Don't be one of those that miss out on what the Lord is doing. Be one of those who has faith in Christ. Enjoy the pleasures of being adopted into the family of God. Father, we do turn to you right now and just pray for salvation. I pray that someone would get saved this morning, either here or listening uh, on the uh, on the internet, I pray, Lord God, that we would be as Christians, we'd be so excited about this wonderfully simple truth of repentance and becoming a Christian that we just can't keep silent about it, and that all of us would share the gospel. Lord, we thank you so much for the simplicity of the gospel. It's so simple a seven-year-old can understand. It's so wonderfully complex that the greatest theologians of all time can hardly get their hands around it. It's never boring to see a life changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the word is the most beautiful sight that we know. So I pray, Lord God, that you would just fill us with this wonderful spirit and fill us with this wonderful message of repentance and love towards God. In Christ's name, amen.